So for the past couple months, the social media world has become familiar with this guy named Seth Phillips. Uh, he's this man who started showing up in the Soho neighborhood in New York City with these cardboard signs, handwritten messages, and just that were kind of ex expressing some words of protest, but just some obvious things. He's probably best known for his Instagram. Uh, it's at dude with sign. Here's the deal. Since October of, of 2019, the guy has 4.2 million followers. Now, if you have no idea what social media is about, let me just tell you, that's pretty impressive, okay? He's a big deal. He's an influencer, as they would say. So I stumbled upon some of his pictures, the ones that were appropriate to show at church, and I thought I would show you a couple of them. Check out this first one. Stop replying all to company-wide emails. Raise your hand if you agree with my friend Seth. Oh my goodness, yes. If you send reply all to company-wide emails, stop. Stop, please, for the love of everybody in your company, stop, all right? Check out this next one. Charging $15 for a bowl of lettuce should be illegal. I mean, here you are trying to eat healthy and it costs you more than if you just get some greasy, sloppy hamburger, right? So it should be a, a crime. Next one is this. Stop standing up when the plane lands. Oh my goodness. So my family and I took a little vacation around the holidays. We were in the very last seat of the entire plane, 350 people in front of us. Before our tires went, you know, screech on the, on the runway, people started standing up, grabbing their bags. I said to my family, sit down. We got hours before we're gonna make it to the front. Put your bag down, relax, drink another water. We'll be, we'll be fine, okay? Uh, one more, here's the last one. No one cares which Disney character you got, okay? If you're on social media, nobody cares. Quit playing those stupid games and posting about them, right? Okay. Oh yeah, funny. I see who you are there. Pumbaa, okay, well, it's better some princess, I guess. Oh man. Anyway, we're really looking for, we're looking for more volunteers now in the media ministry. So uh, see me afterwards, I'll get you in, okay? Well, today we're just going to continue our journey through the uh, book of John. And congratulations, we made it out of chapter one. Let's give us our hopes. Well, Woohoo! we made it to chapter two. People keep coming up to say, saying to me, like, I'm so glad we're walking through the book of John. And I say, I hope you feel that way in July and in October, because we're still going to be in the book of John. There's a lot of good stuff in here. We are doing this because we don't want to just understand. We actually want to learn how to live and love like Jesus. And the book of John has all kinds of great examples. In fact, chapter two is going to begin to show us some signs that everything in chapter one that was said about Jesus is actually true. From the prologue to John the Baptist kind of declaring this truth about Jesus, we're gonna start seeing now in the public ministry of Jesus, these visible signs that Jesus truly is the Messiah. In fact, chapter two through 12, they've been grouped together and called the book of signs. So here's what I want you to do this week, actually right now, take out your journal and just open up to a, a blank new page. And I want you to put at the top of the page, signs, signs. And over the next several weeks, actually throughout the rest of our journey through John, I want you to take record of the signs that you see that, that show that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He's God, he's the word made flesh. Because from this point forward, that's just gonna be what everything is about in the, the book of John. Last week, we heard Jesus making an invitation to a groups of people. Hey, come follow me. He would say to specific people, come and see, come follow me, be my disciple. 
And so now we're going to walk alongside them and journey with Jesus and really see what happens. So turn with me in your Bible if you have it or use the one in the seat back in front of you or on some digital device. John chapter 2, we're going to jump in verse 1. This is what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. John says that this happened on the third day, which what he's saying is from the moment John the Baptist said, hey, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From that moment to this wedding has all happened actually within seven days, a week. I mean, sometimes when we read scripture, it feels like all these years are compressed into one sentence or opposite, like, you know, a sentence, it takes place over, over a short amount of time. But this is the context of that. The disciples who are with Jesus in this moment are not 12, just five, the first five. It's Andrew and John, the author of the gospel. There's Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. All these men were from the same kind of area, the, te- the area of Galilee. And, and this small area, like there's the town of Nazareth where Jesus was from. And, and there were about 500 people that lived in Nazareth. This little town of Cana was actually a little village outside of Nazareth where the shepherds lived. And they estimate maybe about 50 people live there. Here's the reality of small towns. When you're from a small town, everybody knows everybody. Can I get an amen from those of you who've lived in a small town? You know what I mean, right? And so what happens is this unidentified couple, they're getting married and everybody in town is invited. John says that Mary, the mother of Jesus was there. He doesn't call her by name. He never uses his name, but she's there. Also, Jesus and the disciples were invited. They weren't just crashing this wedding party, okay? They were actually invited because they were were friends. Some people believe that Mary may have even been related to this couple getting married, and she may have had some responsibility for throwing this big party. I learned some things about weddings in the first century. First of all, they were funded by the groom. Which as a father of two daughters, I'm going to preach this passage for years to come until both of those girls are married and the groom is paid, right? Uh, The festivities around a wedding actually lasted a whole week, maybe even longer. And hospitality was a big deal in Judaism in the first century. In fact, there was such a a shame culture that everybody just kind of had this sense of responsibility, especially when it came to hospitality. And so... John knows that, that Mary, she's there, and it, it, she has some, some a trouble that comes up. Let's pick it up in verse 3. It says this. When the wine was gone, Mary said to Jesus, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It comes to Mary's attention that the wine is run out. We don't know if it's because she was helping host the party, but regardless, she knows that this is a major deal. To run out of wedding supplies at a feast was a terrible embarrassment for the groom. It was also something that the bride's family could sue the groom's family over. That's how big of a deal it was. And so we need to not be naive when we read about this wedding story. Some people want to clean it all up and polish it all up and say, oh, they're just drinking Welch's grape juice. Well, that's not true to the context of scripture. Actually, this is wine. It's real wine. It's made from fermented grapes. I mean, this is the real deal. 
And so in this culture, we have to realize that wine was important because water purification was not a good reality. In fact, most water had some wine added to it to help clear out and clean out the impurities. Actually, the opposite was true, too. Most wine in those days was diluted by water. Wine was a very common drink because of the water purification issue. But drunkenness was always frowned upon and uh, was, was against Scripture. Mary notices this problem and she makes Jesus aware of it. Why? Well, I'm not sure. That's kind of what Jesus wants to know. He kind of has a harsh response to his mom by saying, woman. I don't know how it would work if you called your mom woman or the mother of your children woman. I'm guessing not real good. Uh, it's, it's a harsh statement. Jesus isn't meaning disrespect. It's not derogatory. But it's very obvious, most scholars believe that in this moment, Jesus is distancing himself from his mother in this moment. The significance is really in, in what Jesus says to her. He says, why do you bother me? You know, it seems that at the worst, Mary's kind of calling in a family, fav a family favor. It might be because she's related to the wedding party, or it might be just because he's her son. Have you ever had a moment where your mom asked you a favor or guilted you into something? How did that go for you? You just kind of feel that icky feeling on the inside, don't you? His response to his mother was very poignant. He says this, my hour has not yet come. Whenever you hear Jesus talk about the hour or his hour in the Gospel of John, he's talking about the mission God gave him to come and save the world, to be a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. Jesus knew his ultimate purpose wasn't just to go around solving catering crises at weddings, okay? He knew he had one mission, and that was to die on the cross. Tonight when you watch the Super Bowl, you're not going to see a guy holding up a sign that says, John 2.10, Jesus turning water into wine. You're going to see him holding up a sign, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is distancing himself from his mother. He's no longer just a child. He also is nobody's puppet. He's saying, I have one purpose, and that's to honor and obey the will of my Father in heaven. He sent me here with a clear purpose. He was starting his public ministry, and he wanted to make very clear to everybody he takes orders from no one other than the Father. I think this moment is very similar to that moment where Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, kind of steps into Jesus and says, hey, bro, I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think Jesus is wise. He knows not to call his mom the devil. But like the intensity is equal. That's on one extreme. I think on the other extreme is this. We see the faith and dependence that Mary had in Jesus. Remember, she was the one, the very first one, who was told this baby that's going to be born to you is from God. It's a miracle. And he's just not any ordinary child. He's the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied. And he's a very important person. He has a grand purpose. Practically speaking, most scholars believe that Joseph, the father of Jesus, was much older than Mary. And they believe that he probably died about the time Jesus, right after his 12th birthday. And so for the majority of Mary's life, her whole dependence and livelihood was based on the providing of her oldest child, and that's Jesus. Both Mark, uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 6 refer to Jesus as the carpenter from Nazareth, not the son of a carpenter. 
And it tells us that Jesus had fulfilled his responsibility to his mom and family by providing for them. Mary had grown to depend on her son, Jesus, for all kinds of her practical needs. Her confidence in him was strong. She knew that he could help and she knew that he would help. And so he, she asked him. I think that's a beautiful picture of one of the guiding principles that we're trying to lean into as a church. The first guiding principle is dependence on God. And Mary had a deep dependence on Jesus. She relied on him in this moment of desperation. And she just is content to let it just rest in his hands. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So let's see what happens in John 2, 6. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill them with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew where, where it had come from. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. There are some powerful moments happening in this moment, both practically and theologically. I kind of want to speak to both practically first. Jesus met a huge need. He's provided wine. He saved the groom from horrible embarrassment and even liability. He provided wine, lots of wine, 150 plus gallons of wine. And it wasn't just any old wine. When the master of the banquet tasted it, he's like, wow, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. It's the choice wine. He wasn't aware of where it had come from, but he was perplexed why the host of the party would save this best wine for the end. That was against what was usual. As scripture records, at a, at a normal banquet, what would happen is the best wine would be served first. And then after people were inebriated, they would bring up any old wine because any old wine would do. But the wine that Jesus produced was the best wine. The servants had, had filled the stone jars up to the very brim, John says. And that's so that no deception was in play. They weren't just like a little water, a little wine, and poof, you know, like maybe it tastes like wine. No, this was the real deal. They had filled the jars up and obeyed the instructions of Jesus. And I'm sure they were just as shocked. They're like, we took these stone jars, we filled them with water. Now he says it tastes like wine. They're just scratching their head like, what happened, right? Well, Warren Wiersbe says this great statement. He says, wise is the couple who invites Jesus to their wedding. I mean, if you're planning a wedding, it might be a good idea to invite Jesus in case you run short on chicken or rice or, or wine, right? He's pretty good in a pinch, it looks like. But I think his presence at this wedding is much more significant than avoiding some catering disaster, right? I've done a lot of weddings. And in every wedding I do, I try to reference this moment in the life of Jesus, his, his first miracle at, at, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, because I think his presence there says something about how important marriage is. Marriage throughout scripture is always held in high regard, and Jesus being there is, is a, a, an affirmation of that. Hebrews 13, 4 says that marriage should be held in high honor among all people. And I think Jesus is dis describing there, demonstrating that. Theologically speaking, though, there's also so much happening in this moment. First of all, Jesus made water into wine. 
That is creative. And that just goes to show that his presence and participation when the world was spoken into existence, that he's God because only God can do something like that. He displays his power as God in this miracle. He can make something happen when we depend on him. He's capable. Nothing is too big for him. Next, Jesus has, has already alluded to his purpose here on earth when responding to his mom about his hour. He came to replace this old system of purification with the new wine of justification. These six stone jars, they were used in the purification process that the Old Testament law outlined. The, the water in these jars was used for washing hands, for washing feet, for washing the plates and utensils before the meal and actually after the meal cleaning up. And Jesus is replacing this, this water of, of purification with justification. He's replacing these empty works of Judaism and the law with his sufficiency in making us holy, pure through the atoning sacrifice of his life on the cross, his death on the cross. Jesus can take our dirty, sinful past and make it pure, make it beautiful, make it clean. That's what justification means. Justification is the making us holy in God's sight. And that's something only God can do through Jesus. Paul says that in Romans 3, verse 22. He says this, we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. He can take our dirty, sinful past. He can make it clear and pure and beautiful. He's a savior, not just of wedding fiascos, but of, of the mess that we've made out of our life due to sin. The miracle showed up, showed, it showed the glory of Jesus, that he's sovereign of, of, over creation and of the material world. And he's also this merciful God who provides abundantly for the needs of his people, especially the need of a savior. The miracle itself is a sign that Jesus is Messiah. You know, wine throughout the whole entire Old Testament is always an illustration of God's blessing on a person. Isaac in Genesis chapter 27, he wants to bless his son Jacob. He asks and pray for, for his life to be filled with an abundance of grain and an abundance of wine. Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, when the people of Israel go into the promised land, if they obey God, that God would pour out his blessing upon them. There would be an abundance of grain and wine and all other blessings in this new land they're inheriting. I think both David and Solomon in, in Psalms and Proverbs uses wine as a, an illustration of God's blessing. Wine and feasting are also very associated with the coming of Messiah. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Wedding feasts uh, were a popular picture that Jesus chose to use in his teaching and his parables to speak about the coming of the kingdom of God. All throughout the book of John, he, John records these signs that are proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. And this wedding presence and miracle is just one of the first. Look at some of the others. Changing water to wine, healing an official son, healing an invalid, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, healing a man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, even his own death and resurrection. Those are just a few of the signs that John shows us and points to this is Jesus. 
In each of the signs, John includes the emphasis. It's on the way the sign reveals Jesus' messianic character, the exceptional and striking nature of the feat accomplished by Jesus, especially in the, the large quantity of wine and also in the high quality of the wine in this moment. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus' miracles were never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but instead signs, significant displays of power that pointed beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could only be perceived by eyes of faith. By this first sign, Jesus declares that He declares his glory. It's the glory of the one and only, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, like John 1 verse 14 says. He helped out in a time of need, but this miracle pointed to him as Messiah. And listen how people responded. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John identifies this as the very first miracle Jesus performed. And that's important because there's some apocryphal literature out there that that has some fanciful stories, like one of Jesus playing in a sandbox and he puts some mud and some sand and some clay together and kind of breathes his breath in and poof, this bird appears and flies off into the distance. There's really no biblical proof for that. It's a fanciful tale. But Jesus, these these are signs that we're reading that actually are proof that that Jesus is the Messiah. John says, this is the first one. And then a little bit later, he'll say, this is the second one. But for the rest of them, he doesn't number them anymore. And I think what he's saying is that everything about the life of Jesus, everything about his ministry is proof that he is the Messiah. No, the world will want to disprove the miracle or they'll just want to fixate on the miracle. But the importance is on the lesson to be learned from the miracle. It's if John is saying like, This is obvious. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's holding up a big sign for us to know. Be looking for those. They're proofs that Jesus is who he says he is. They're signs. You might want to take some notes on that page you've labeled signs at the definition of a sign. Here's a couple. A sign directs attention away from the unusual nature to the meaning and significance it points to. Another part of a sign is this. Signs are proof of the divine authority of Jesus and the worthiness of believing and following him. They reveal the glory of God in the person and ministry of Jesus so that we will believe in him. So what can you and I take away? What can we learn from this miracle and moment in the life of Jesus? Well, let me help us process that by just asking three questions. Here's the first question. Who do you go to when you're desperate? The first person Mary turned to when she realized there was no more wine, she turned to Jesus because she knew that he could and that he would help. We see the glory of God displayed by Jesus in this miracle because only God can do something like this. This is one of those greater things that Jesus said that Nathanael would see when in chapter one he invited Nathanael to follow him. God's compassion and power are both revealed by Jesus caring enough to help and to perform this miracle. His glory is on display and it's recorded for you and I to look at and know so that our faith would grow in him and that we would turn to him when we're in need, when we're desperate, when we're empty, when we're hopeless. So invite Jesus not just to your wedding, but invite him into your life. 
Invite him into your marriage, into your work, into your school, into your team, into your neighborhood. God, his presence and power through Jesus can fill the emptiness and can provide help when you need it the most. Obviously, our most desperate need was the need of a savior. And Jesus, not only did he show up, he came through in meeting our greatest need. He loved us at our worst and he performed the greatest miracle in our life by saving us from our sins. I love how Paul describes this in Romans chapter eight. I don't know how you learn best. I'm an auditory learner. So maybe in this moment, just maybe close your eyes and listen. Maybe you're a visual learner and you need to just watch the, the words on the screen as, as Paul describes what, what Jesus has done in our behalf. Listen to these words. Paul says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare to even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone's going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst of sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, Paul says, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. So trust in Jesus for salvation and trust him for every other thing that you might need. He loves you and he's completely capable. The second question is this, how have you seen God work in your life? Do you recognize how God is at work in your life? I think there were only a few people who got to actually witness that miracle that day. It was the servants. They were the ones who had a front row seat at what happened from the water jugs to the wine. And when they saw, they believed. They obeyed Jesus, his instructions. And it allowed them to witness and experience this miracle. You have a front row seat to the miracle and to the work of God. His glory being displayed in your life. The signs of Jesus' identity will always force us to recognize Jesus' God-sent authority. And also to make a faith-filled decision. His glory will become more and more evident as he continues to reveal himself to us. And so we must look with eyes of faith. Don't miss Jesus. Look for him. Trust him. Taste the wine that he provides. I think that's why David said in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'd encourage you this week to take some time, actually make some time, to pull out your journal and just begin making a list of all the different ways that God has shown up in your life, big and small. I have a feeling you could fill several journals with just making that list of all the ways that God is at work in your life. Somebody told me in the atrium this morning, when anybody asks me, how are you doing? I go like this. And I didn't say, I'm sucking air, so I must be good. 
That might be the simplest thing you could write down today. You're still alive here today, so God has not quit on you yet. And there's so much more that God is doing in our life and has done in our life. So allow those moments, allow that list to grow your dependence and your trust in God. There's one last question. How are you going to respond to the needs around you? I think last Sunday, like kind of time started to stand still for just a few moments when all of us learned about Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven other people dying. There's a man who had it all that was gone just like that, right? And it reminds us just how brief life can be. I think it reminds us how quickly those things that are precious to us can can be taken from us. You know, it seems like the, the bickering in Washington kind of stopped for at least a little bit. Seemed like parents kind of hugged their children a little tighter. They were a little more present in the moment because they didn't know if it might be their last. I think the little things started to feel a lot like big things. You know, I think so many times in our life as Christ followers, we kind of have a, a, a great prayer. It's like, God, use me to make a difference in the world around me. God, use me for your purposes. And then we kind of just sit back and wait for the big thing to happen. Like, where will the seas part? Or when can I turn water into wine? And, you know, I don't think it happens in those grand scales. I really think it happens in the little things. It happens in those things that are just everyday needs that present themselves in your life as a spouse or as a parent or as a neighbor, or as a coworker. It's those things that seem little that God has placed you for big reasons. What amazes me about this moment in Jesus' life is he was objecting to his Mom's request, you know, lady, this, this is not my purpose. My purpose is to die for the sins of the world. There is nothing bigger than dying for the sins of the world, my friends. But yet Jesus still performs the miracle and helps a buddy out who ran short on wine. Look for the needs around you. Be aware of those simple needs that you can do something about. And don't miss those when you're kind of sitting back waiting for something bigger to happen. You remember the story Jesus told, it was a parable about the Good Samaritan. The spiritual people, well, they were way too busy to help out some bloody beaten guy in the ditch. In fact, they didn't even see him because they had more important things to do. If you want to live and love like Jesus, then I think you and I should slow down and begin looking around. Be present. Notice the little things. And when you see a need, lend a hand. And Jesus says, when you offer some food or drink to somebody who's hungry or thirsty, when you offer clothes to somebody who's naked, when you go to visit somebody who's sick or in prison, you're actually serving him, but you're also serving and living and loving like him. So my friends, we have an opportunity. If you and I are going to live and love like Jesus, then our dependence on Jesus needs to grow. It needs to model Jesus' mother Mary and many others who place their faith in Jesus not just a savior, but Lord as well. And because Jesus is Lord and he's savior, we're, we're looking to him. Our eyes are focused on him. We're following him. We're noticing where he shows up. And many a times where he shows up is a place where need meets opportunity. And my prayer is that you and I as Christ followers would lean into those moments and be his hands and feet and live and love a lot more like him. Would you pray with me? God, um, 
A couple months ago, we said that we wanted to just do this. We wanted to show up in these moments, God. That wasn't just some cool hashtag or something to put on a t-shirt or talk about up front. It really is something that you've called us to, to live in love like Jesus, to be dependent on you and your, your power and presence in our life, to be noticing where you are at work and to just join you, offering the gifts that you've given us to lend a hand and help someone out and, and to move your kingdom forward. And God, I pray as we do that, people would start to notice there's something different about us. And we'd be able to be a sign, a sign that points to your glory, a sign that points people to your son Jesus, a sign that points out where the way, the truth, and the life is actually found. That they wouldn't see us, that they would see you. God, this world needs help. It needs hope. It needs purpose. It needs justification and salvation. And all those are only found in you. So God, we ask, we offer ourselves as your people, as, you, as your followers, to be useful and helpful in meeting that need in very tangible ways. And again, we ask that you would receive all the glory. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help. And we pray this through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.